1: It's that time again, Jim. Election season's about to shove summer aside. Oh, already? Yeah. This week we learned that Kamala Harris is Joe Biden's pick to be his running mate, and then we've got the conventions coming up.
2: But with COVID, nothing is normal. I mean, the conventions are going to be mostly online, and the election itself faces a lot of questions. We're going to look at some of those in this episode.
1: America's Voting Crisis, David Litt, Charles Stewart, and the Democracy Group.
3: So if you look at nearly every one of the the problems, the barriers to voting, they exist for everybody. I mean, I I certainly know white people who have waited in an hour-long line to vote. But in 2012, for example, you were six times more likely to wait an hour or more to vote if you were non-white. Our show is about
1: fixes.
0: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How
1: do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we
0: fix
2: it?
1: On the morning we release this episode, there are 82 days and counting until the 2020 presidential election.
2: Can't wait. You know, a lot of people are worried about whether we can really hold a reasonably efficient election in these conditions. Trump's been talking about voting fraud and mail-in vote fraud, and we've seen some big problems with some of the primaries. In Georgia, last month, voters waited, in some cases, up to five hours in line to vote in person. In New York, it took weeks to count all the absentee ballots and get results for the
1: congressional primary elections. But could it get even uglier in November with much larger turnout? We get two perspectives on this show. One is why it's so difficult for many people to vote. And the other is on this COVID election and how it's going to be held.
2: First, let's hear from Charles Stewart, a political science professor at MIT and a contributor to the Election Updates blog He's spoken with election officials across the country about how to implement voting by mail and the changes needed to make in-person voting safe.
1: Charles Stewart spoke in the spring with Jenna Spinelli on Democracy Works, which is a podcast on democracy reform and part of Democracy Group, which is a podcast network that we're part of. So this interview comes from fellow team members.
0: And, you know, we were already concerned about voter confidence in 2020, and I think we have to do as much as we can to maintain voter confidence. Certainly, part of that is going to be dealing with the health emergency. So it's going to be easy in Oregon, Washington, Colorado. In fact, they're already there because they're already voting by mail, but there's actually more in-person interaction in those states than you think. Most voters in those states return those ballots in person, um, either at a, at a Dropbox or a vote center. And then about something like 5 to 10% of the voters in Colorado nonetheless go to a vote center to vote in person. But if all you cared about was public health and you were used to voting by mail, that would seem to be the ideal solution in in those places. Mm-hmm. And so they're pretty much there.
4: But there are lots of other states that are not in that place at all. I mean, I know Pennsylvania, where we all are just this year, increased its, its vote-by-mail capacity, but there are others that are lagging even further behind where we are right now. So outside of those, those right. states you mentioned, um, what, what's the, the landscape look like?
0: Pennsylvania and Michigan are two battleground states where they've just gone to a regime where you no longer need an excuse to vote by mail. There's going to be a strong push to close precincts, both because you're trying to depopulate them and secondly, because you're going to have a hard time getting election workers to staff them and understand that. If I were a betting person, I would bet that at least half of the voters in Pennsylvania will nonetheless vote on election day in 2020. In which case you're going to need the the polling places you're going to need for a lot of social distancing, you know, you're going to need that capacity.
4: Do you think that that states have or will have the capacity to be able to do that? I mean thinking about, you know, they're also dealing with schools that are closed and economic impact and public health issues and, 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 and all sorts of things. It, you know, I, just, I wonder where some of these like election issues fall on the scale of, of things that state and, and, and local officials are, are worrying about right now.
0: Well, here's the thing. Right now, um, state and local officials are worrying about a variety of things. I mean, it's my sense that in the places where the elections are coming up, as we saw, say, in Ohio, people are paying attention to elections when they have to. And I can also say that right now, everybody in the election space are thinking about what to do. And so I'm not too worried about whether they're going to think this thing through. And you know, at the end of the day, I'm not as worried as some about the resources for the following reason. The, the hardest resource is going to be people, to staff the polling places, to count the ballots, if you don't have enough people, the worst that happens is that you have delays. So the kind of plan B and a half is to secure places where you usually don't have people hanging around for a long, long
4: time. Seems like there might also be some some security issues that, that are, are raised here that would not have necessarily been the case if, if voting is primarily happening in person. What are some of those Security concerns that that come along with shifting to uh, something that's more heavily focused on voting by mail.
0: So the big, cons- a big security concern to vote by mail derived from the fact that you lose um, lose control over the chain of custody of the ballot, um, particularly when it's in the in the voter's home. Which is actually, I think, the big, the biggest problem. Maybe your spouse is taking your ballot and marked it for you and sent it back without you knowing it ever came. Maybe the ballot for your kid who's off at college has arrived. You vote it and vote it and send it back. Maybe for the, the person who owned the house before you who has died and you know somebody requested a a, a mail ballot for them. Maybe you do that. So. Um, I mean, these are fanciful. I mean, you know, we know that voter impersonation is rare, as is mail ballot fraud. But among the the flavors of voting fraud, the least rare, we'll put it that way, mm-hmm. the least rare um, involves um, voting by mail, um, where you know precisely people take advantage of of a number of these features. Now, there are ways of uh, there are ways of mitigating. Um, so so let's get outside of the home and let's think about. Um, you know, the the process of transmitting the ballots. In a state like Oregon or, or Colorado, as a voter, you can go onto a website and you can see, oh, they've mailed my ballot. Um, I have my ballot, I have marked it. Oh, I put it in the mail. Oh, look, it's arrived at the county office. And oh, look, they opened it up and they accepted it. And um, they're counting it. Um, we can pretty much guarantee that the states that are going to ramp up, um, Male voting this time are not going to have those services, and so a lot of election security depends on many eyes watching the process. And you know, in these states, it's going to be harder when when it's five percent of ballots. You don't worry so much about it. When it's three or forty percent of ballots, then you start to worry about this.
4: Yeah, and of course, you know, any brand new process or even sort of new process, there's always you know errors and kind of roadblocks and things that you didn't anticipate. So we're gonna see all those things play out perhaps, but in a, in a situation where there's no time to go back and redo it or you really only get one shot at it?
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah, Ab- absolutely. There's no do-overs, there's no, no, November 3rd's gotta happen. These are all works in progress and you can be guaranteed that in the states that are ramping up for the first time, there's gonna be a lot more questions, a lot more um, snafus. And, you know, we're gonna have to, um, I don't quite say accept it, but we have to plan for it.
4: Yeah, and and the the hope would be then that that states that are newer can learn from Oregon and Colorado and and Washington about what, you know, to, to, to try to avoid making some of the same mistakes that they've already had, or they can kind of learn from what they've done.
0: Yeah, they can to some degree, and 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 certainly the, the election directors in the states um, have already reached out, and they have all sorts of emails and the twenty things you know we wish we had known when we started doing this that they're they're mailing around. So so there's a lot you know there's a lot of experience um, among the election administrators about how to do this. The the thing though, and this is where um, this is where the heterogeneity of American federalism comes in. Oregon, Washington, Colorado's experience only goes so far. And, you know, ultimately Pennsylvania and New Jersey and, you know, they're going to have to figure it out on their own and actually might learn more from each other. Then they might learn from western states that have been had you know they've had great distances they've been you know great physical distances in the west they've been voting by mail for a long time they have a strong progressive um, political tradition in both the democratic and republican parties and so you have a number of things there that make it i think easier to settle into voting by mail than um, those of us on the east coast and the northeast
2: will that's charles stewart of mit speaking on democracy works a podcast from the McCourtney Institute at Penn State University.
1: We're doing this podcast with the help from our fellow members of Democracy Group, a network of podcasts with the goal of helping listeners understand what's broken in our democracy and how people are working together to fix it. More coming up from another
2: Democracy Group podcast in a sec. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs.
1: And the best part, they're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Next, an interview from the podcast, Democracy Matters, hosted by Kara Ong-Whaley and Abe Goldberg of James Madison University. They spoke with David Litt, author of the new book, Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think.
1: David is a Democrat and a former speechwriter for President Obama. Much of his book is about voting rights, efforts to suppress voting for large numbers of people, and what can be done about it. We'll discuss his ideas after this interview.
3: When I was growing up, I always learned that people don't vote because they're apathetic or because they're lazy. People who don't vote don't have the right to complain. That's what I always heard. And then as I did research for this new book, I realized that's actually not true. And in fact, in many, many cases, it's the opposite. People don't get to complain because they have no right to vote or they have the right to vote, but they don't have the ability to vote. So the way I break it down is there's really three major barriers to the ballot for Americans. Number one, there's many more Americans who do not have voting rights than I realized when I started writing this new book. Number two, many Americans who theoretically have voting rights are taken off the registration rolls or never have the chance to get on the registration rolls. So even though you can legally register in theory, by the time the election rolls around, you can't cast a ballot or your ballot is invalidated after the fact, one or the other. Your right to vote is not technically attacked but your ability to vote is. And then finally, there's a lot of people in America for whom voting is much, much, much more work than it is for others. And I think we're seeing this all around the country in these primary elections. You're seeing these two, three, four hour long lines. And those are emblematic of a system where for a small but meaningful slice of Americans, voting is simply too difficult. So all of those taken together help explain why America has lower turnout than just about any other developed democracy.
1: Turnout among millennial voters was low in 2016, just under 50 percent, far lower than for older age groups. David Litt was asked about
3: this. For young people, it is much harder to vote than it is for many people who are more established in their lives and careers. If you move around a lot, your registration is often not current and you have to re-register. For example, right now in Georgia, they are trying to pass a law where you would have to scan and photocopy your driver's license to vote by mail. You'd have to include a printout of your driver's license. That is going to be much more onerous for a lot of young voters who don't have a printer at home. So if you look at all of these things taken together, um, there's a combination of things. One is making sure people feel like their votes matter. But the other is also making sure that voting is as easy as possible when, in fact, For young voters, it's often harder than it is for voters who have been part of the political process for a longer time.
0: So David, in your book, Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It Is Easier Than You Think, you you talk a lot about the unelectorate, which I I really appreciate, and especially as a political scientist. I wonder what we should be studying and trying to learn more about the
3: unelectorate. I think that because we don't focus on voters, or sorry, rather on non-voters enough, it actually has a real effect on our politics because what it means is that then it encourages politicians to only think about the will of the voters rather than the will of the people. And in turn, because of the way our political process is constructed, it encourages politicians to see whether they can push some people who are currently in the electorate or might be in the electorate into the world of the non-voters because they think, well, you know, these people might not vote for me, so rather than try to convince them with better messages or new ideas, I'm just going to keep them from voting and then I don't have to worry about them. And that's the antithesis of how a democratic society should function. Um, It's the opposite of the way accountability should function. And as the gap between the electorate and the unelectorate grows, the gap between what the American people want and what the voters want also grows. And that means there's a growing gap between what our government does and what the people want it to do.
0: David... When you say that elections are a reflection of the electorate rather than the unelectorate, and we know from lots of research that we can predict pretty accurately who's going to be in the electorate relative to the
3: unelectorate, what does that say about equity? Well, if the electorate mirrored the population exactly, in other words, if we only had 50% of, of people voting, but those 50% were demographically identical to the 100% of Americans, it might be sort of a shame that we didn't have more people voting, but you wouldn't see an impact on our policy, on the direction of our country. As it happens, the electorate and the population look totally different. So the voters are more likely to be white than the average American. They're disproportionately wealthy. They're disproportionately homeowners as opposed to renters. They're disproportionately older. The way I put it is along every single dimension, the average voter looks more like Donald Trump than the average American. And that's particularly stark in two different areas, race and age. So if you look at nearly every one of the barriers to voting I just talked about, they exist for everybody. I mean, I I certainly know white people who have waited in an hour long line to vote. But in 2012, for example, you were six times more likely to wait an hour or more to vote if you were non-white. And if you look at voter purges, which are taking millions of Americans, including millions of eligible Americans, off of voter rolls, again, that disproportionately is affecting non-white voters. And when we talk about intentional skewing of the electorate away from the population, that's also where young voters increasingly come in. Because one of the things that happens in American politics— is that any time a group of voters becomes identified with just one party, the other party starts to try to disenfranchise that group. And that's what we're seeing with young voters. Um, As young voters become more and more reliably democratic voters, we've seen more and more laws passed specifically to try to disenfranchise those voters or to make it extremely difficult for them to vote. And particularly college students, because college students are changing their addresses constantly. um, College students are particularly easy to disenfranchise if that's what you want to do. And we've seen these efforts over and over.
2: David Litt points out that the American electoral system is not run by the federal government.
3: We don't really have national elections. We have a conglomeration of state elections that are all run differently and everyone's laws are different. And when it comes to the administration of our elections, how many polling places we have, how many poll workers we hire, just the basic blocking and tackling. Even that is not done at a state level. It's generally done at a county level. Um, And so what we see from all of that is, on one hand, there's some real value to that. Um, Our elections would be much easier for a foreign country to hack, for example, to go in and tamper with the final vote count if we were only running one election. But because we run 50 different ones, it's fairly difficult to get into all of those systems and hack them. A disadvantage is that many people in many states... Are operating under a system of laws that is much less fair than you would want to see. I think it's generally not a bad thing that states run elections, but I think the federal government needs to set standards Um, in much the same way that the federal government sets standards for roads by saying, here's how we're going to construct the highways. The federal government can set standards for state and local elections by saying, here are the minimum requirements for a federal election. So things like automatic voter registration, um, ending overbroad voter purges, Um, all sorts of really basic reforms that would make an enormous difference. We don't have to do them 50 different times in 50 different states. We could do them at a federal level.
4: Can you talk about the strengths and challenges of universal mail-in voting?
3: Mail-in voting is already in use in five states. So mail-in voting is both important during COVID because it's a way for more people to cast ballots that don't involve putting their health at risk, and because it's a way of making sure that we don't face lines that could be seven or eight hours long when you know, we don't have enough poll workers because a lot of our poll workers are over the age of 60 and at high risk for COVID. I think this is a moment for, first of all, a lot of voters who have never experienced difficulty voting before, realizing that voting is not as easy as as it seems. And to remember that this is happening to some people all the time. So there's a lot of white voters for whom this is the first time They've ever showed up at the polls in person and had to wait for three hours. There's a lot of non-white voters who say, yeah, that happens in my neighborhood pretty regularly. That happens in my state every year or every two years. Um, And so hopefully the conversation we're having about mail-in balloting and the the rules that we're trying to put in place will lead to a broader conversation that says voting should be easy. And that's just not the way that we currently think about voting as a country. And it would be a, a sea change that could last not just this year, but well beyond it. David Litt
2: on the podcast Democracy Matters. Learn more about the show and other podcasts on the website democracygroup.org.
1: Coming up next, our recommendation.
2: Well, this is an easy one, Richard, because it's the group we've been talking about that helps spread the word about our show and others that discuss civil
1: discourse and civic engagement, the Democracy Group. All of their podcasts and many more can be found on the Lyceum app, which is devoted to educational podcasts.
2: The app includes curated lists of shows around topics like climate change, linguistics, ancient history, and of course, a lot of podcasts about the issues that we talk about a lot, democracy, civic engagement, and we're in there too.
1: And now to our conversation. There's a lot to worry about here, Jim. Both access to voting and the fresh problems of voting right in the middle of a pandemic are going to be huge challenges for state and local governments across the country. So what do you think?
2: Yeah, it's a mixed bag because in some areas, mail-in voting has worked really well and seems like a pretty secure system. In other areas, things have been a mess. So it's challenging whether people are going to the polls and worried about COVID or worried about even having enough poll workers. A lot of the poll workers are older. They're not going to want to show up at the polls. So I think we'll muddle through, but I think anything that adds doubt to the security of our elections is bad for our society in general.
1: And there are some really interesting solutions on this problem of voter workers emerging. For instance, in Tennessee, they've changed the rules so that anybody over the age of 16 can be a poll worker. And that may be one way of fixing this problem.
2: You know, we're going to be doing a lot of things for the first time or experimenting with a lot of things. So fingers crossed. I did think Charles Stewart's points about vote by mail were somewhat worrisome. He said, with vote by mail, you lose control of the chain of custody. You know, it's inherently a messier system.
1: I quarrel whether it's really a messier system in states that have really been very experienced in this. And for instance, one example is is Utah. Another is Oregon. They both have uh, Republican secretaries of state and they're very much in favor of the vote by mail process. But boy, Jim, we've certainly seen the other side of this in New York where things have been a total mess. So so you're saying that Republican states have efficient mail-in systems, <laughs> No, no. California and I think some other states like Colorado, who are right. administered by Democrats. Uh, no, I'm trying to make a nonpartisan point, Jim. And then it's also worrisome that some people, and this was certainly true in past elections in New York City, have to line up for hours. One election reform I'd be very much in favor of is just declaring Election Day a national holiday.
2: Well, there's certainly no excuse for people having to wait hours. But I think. What both sides should be able to agree on is what really matters isn't, is there fraud so much as does the system make fraud easier? If we have a system that doesn't appear trustworthy to both sides, even if the problems wind up being pretty trivial, that in itself
1: is a problem. And I think we need to fix it. It's how do we fix it? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. Uh, Check out what we can do for you in making a new podcast at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening.
0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.